Hebrews chapter 13 is our text. We are bringing it in for a landing today, verses 17 to the end of the chapter. And what do you say at the end of a great book like this, which was a sermon, remember, uh, originally from this author to this congregation, probably a group of congregations outside of Rome. And uh, he has uh, taken us on quite a tour, uh, especially of heaven, the heavenly court, and where Christ reigns as our kingly high priest where he is seated at the right hand of the Father because his work for us in terms of our atonement is finished. His work as our intercessor continues. He continues to rule and reign. And I found this at the end of a commentary by, that was written in 1964. And uh, now I'm all wound up in my... Hang on a minute. I've got a wardrobe failure. Here we go. Um, Somebody gave me these things because I keep losing them, these clickets. You've seen these? And I had a pair of these except for, for my first duck hunt, and I blew the lenses out of them because I didn't do it. And somebody gave me another one. But here in 1964, he writes this, So in a day when everything can be shaken, is being shaken before our eyes and even beneath our feet, sound contemporary? In a day when everything that can be shaken is being shaken before our eyes and even beneath our feet, let us turn and give thanks for the unshakable kingdom which we have inherited, which endures forever, when everything else to which men may pin their hopes disappears and leaves not a rack behind. Well, what was true in 1964 is true today. What is true in the first century is true today. We have an unshakable kingdom because we have a king named Jesus Christ. And if Christ is your Savior by faith, and I trust that that, uh, that is true for you, and if it is not, here is the day of your salvation. When you, when you ask Him to take your sins away and substitute His righteousness for yours, He unites you with Himself. And when He, because He is unshakable, you will be unshakable as well. You'll be in an unshakable kingdom. That's what we've been learning. And so let's put a period and an exclamation point on it as we look at these final verses beginning in verse 17. <clears throat> Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. 
You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Let's pray once again. Open our eyes, O Lord, that we would behold wonderfully encouraging things from this portion of your word, things that would convince us that this kingdom we are in by faith in Jesus Christ is unshakable, and that we would live as men who serve in an unshakable kingdom, that we would not be weak need, that we would not be afraid of those who would make fun of our faith or challenge us, or that we would not be afraid to lose anything and everything for your kingdom that you would keep the eyes, the, 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 the face of Jesus Christ before our eyes continually, even as we have sung from Samuel Rutherford's hymn, the bride eyes not her garments, but her dear bridegroom's face. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's Lamb. We pray that we would focus on our dear bridegroom. It would make us brave It would make us contagiously joyful. It would make us uh, joyfully submissive to all of the authorities you have graciously put in our lives. And we pray this all in the strong name of Christ and for His sake and God's people said together, amen. It is interesting, isn't it, that the author ends this book all about Christ with this strong exhortation to obey your leaders, to submit to your pastors or elders, to listen to his exhortation. Why is he pleading with us this way? Because surely after, after 12 and a half, 13 and a half chapters of grace, we have to understand that this exhortation is born out of grace that this obedience is in response to grace. This must be because God wants our good. It must be because Christ wants life to go well with us. You remember that great work of art, that great piece of film literature called Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory? I had the bright idea when when my children were really, really little, I saw that coming on, and I said, Jackie, this was a great movie when we were kids. Uh, 1971 was produced, I think, and we're, well, let's, let's show our kids this. Well, it terrified them. It's absolutely terrifying. You know, because the, the plot is that Willy Wonka has this, he's this mysterious, crazy old guy, Gene Wilder, and uh, he, he has, a, has, a, has a candy shop, and he's closed the doors on it because uh, somebody's trying to, tried to steal, he reports that somebody tried to steal his recipes, but then he says he's going to reopen it. And he's going to give people, he's going to give kids a backstage or a factory tour if they have a golden ticket. And the golden ticket will be found in the Wonka bar. People are buying Wonka bars like crazy. And there are six golden tickets. Five bratty kids get one. And then Charlie, the poor little paper boy, gets the final one, finally. They show up on the day to uh, take the tour of the factory. They come through the backstage. It's this crazy factory run by Oompa Loompas. 
And you remember what happened to the other five kids? Augustus falls into the chocolate river and gets sucked down a chute. And uh, some other bratty girl, what was her name, Violet, gets, uh, gets, eats, uh, eats uh, the wrong blueberry or something, and it's a three-course meal, and she blows up and gets stuck in a tube. That finished off my kids right there. Uh, Joe uh, eats, drinks too many fizzy drinks, and he blows up and wanders into a fan or something. And then Veruca uh, wants her own golden goose and ends up, she falls into a garbage chute and her dad falls with her. It's tragic. All five kids explode, implode, get burned up, thrown down a garbage chute or something. And the common denominator among all of them is what? They ignored Willy Wonka's warnings. Don't drink that. Don't eat that. Don't bend over too far looking into that. Don't indulge yourself in that. Follow me. Follow me. Only one does. Charlie. And the whole thing was a test because he wanted to give his whole kingdom over to one of these kids. Now, the Lord Jesus is a kind shepherd. That's what He's called here. And uh, we tend to think that we know what is best, don't we? We tend to think, I know what is best for my life. I know what is best in this situation. I know what is best in my business. I know what is best in, in uh, morality. I know what is best in politics. I know what is best in everything because I've lived more than than, uh, than a little bit, or I've had a great education, or I've had great parenting, and I'm a smart guy. I know what is best. I had a friend tell me one time, I was, at a, at a, I was actually at a Christian dinner, and, <clears throat> or dinner for a Christian ministry, and uh, I, I said, uh, I asked him what, uh, what, what church he goes to. He said, I don't have time to go to church. He said a Christian ministry dinner, but I thought thought it's a reasonable question. What do you mean? I don't have time to go to church. I have to work seven days a week. Well, you you do? You you have to work seven days a week? Yes. God's not going to pay my bills. I have to pay my bills. Well, we tend to think we know what is best. And our text tells us that Jesus... Your good shepherd wants what is best for you. In fact, the whole Bible tells you that, even in Deuteronomy 4. I want life to go well with you. That's why I've given you my law. So because Jesus, your good shepherd, wants what is best for you, you must follow his lead. And he leads you through leaders. Yes, he leads you through your own conscience. But he has put into your life structures and authorities. This came in on me yesterday at the Binghampton Christian Academy tour. They have a tremendous uh, statement that they make every, every uh, a commitment statement they make every morning. And in that statement it says, Christ has appointed leaders for me. I will submit to them. Christ has graciously submit, given leaders to me and I will submit to them. Well, I want to make two points with you that we must 
in submitting to, because Christ cares for us, we submit to Him as our great shepherd, and then we submit to our under-shepherds. I want to look at verses 20 and 21, and we're going to look at the text in reverse order to make this point. We start with this benediction, verses 20 and 21, look at the kind of great shepherd (coughs) we have been given. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now this is the only time in the book of Hebrews that Christ is called the shepherd. And He's called the, not just the shepherd, but the great shepherd. John calls him the good shepherd. He calls himself the good shepherd in John. But here the author calls him the the great shepherd. And, And why does he wait to the end to call him the great shepherd? Because he intends for us, I think, to gather up all of the titles that we've learned of Christ throughout the whole book of Hebrews and to realize that they are all subsumed, they're all gathered up in this one title, the Great Shepherd. This one who who died on the cross for us. Who was he? He was a shepherd laying down his life for his sheep. Who was this one who, who made himself the perfect sacrifice and battled through his opponents in hell, those that uh, the, the devil and his minions who would have dragged us down to hell forever. Who was it? It is the shepherd who loves his sheep. Who is this one who says, you must turn away from those false doctrines. You must turn away from immorality. <clears throat> you must give yourself wholly to the Lord. You must not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Who is he? A bossy, uh, impossible to please deity? No, he is the shepherd the one who guides us for our good. There's a theologian named Marcus Bart who said this, the uh, exegesis, that is what we're doing, unpacking every verse of Scripture. What is it? What is exegesis? Exegesis is the endeavor to help people in need by telling them what the Bible says of their shepherd, Jesus Christ. I've taught, I've taught preaching for a long time. I wish I'd have had that 30 years ago. That is exactly what we want to convey in teaching preachers. That's exactly what every Christ-centered message should be. Not just communicating data, not just telling you what the verses mean, not telling you what you better be doing or God's going to get you, or a few more laws to add to the ones that you already can't keep. Exegesis is addressing people in need. Every one of you has a need today, a need for redemption, and a need of specific kinds of redemption. Not just overall, but today you're anxious. Today you're worried. Today you're angry. Today you have a problem relationship. Today you are, you don't know, you don't have hope for the next moment. You're afraid of going to work. You have a need. And the exegesis of the Word of God is to take what the shepherd has to say and what he has done for you and apply it to that need. It's you have a need, 
God has a supply of redemption for it, and then you have a reasonable response, which is, in view of His love for me, I'm going to follow the shepherd. Well, why should you follow this great shepherd? Several reasons, four of them that come from this benediction. Number one, this shepherd has power to lead you. Notice the text says, he was brought again from the dead. Now, we know that intellectually. We remember that every Easter. We celebrate his resurrection. But do do we daily and constantly apply that fact to our obedience to Christ. I'll tell you how I learned it from a layman. I learned that I don't do that enough from a layman who's a dear friend in Augusta. He's a state judge, and uh, he also happens to be African-American. And he walked a very narrow path as a state judge. He was also a member of our church Uh, And he was a very fine theologian. He'd read, I think he read a lot more than I ever did. And he had to make, he was a very significant leader in our city, and he was looked to for leadership, and it was a very, it was a great burden on him. State judges have burdens anyway. They, They look at the underbelly of sin every day, and they can get very cynical, and he had to, he had to fight that in his soul. And then he had those who were looking to him politically for guidance, and that was a challenge. And then he had challenges in his family, and he had challenges in his theological world. And he would frequently say this, I have to do this. I have to make this decision because Christ tells me this is the way to go. And Christ was raised from the dead. Well, I always thought, you know, it's just enough for you to say Christ tells me to do that. But he would, he would always remind himself, I am doing this in obedience to Christ because Christ was raised from the dead. He was also a very smart man, which meant that he had explored the faith to the point that he had pushed it in his, his um, high-level education at Morehouse and in law school and in his time in the Marines. He had challenged his own faith, he explored it intellectually, and he concluded The Christian faith is the way, the truth, and the life because only in the Christian faith has the leader been raised from the dead. And there is not, there is no evidence that can disprove that fact. He was raised from the dead. That makes him solid. That makes him a fact. That makes him a unique authority. Because he has been raised from the dead, he has power. He has the unique power, unique authority to lead me. That's your Savior. And then secondly, He is authorized to lead. He is authorized to lead you and me because He has made the once for all sufficient sacrifice called here the blood of the eternal covenant. Now, we can appreciate this language by now because we've contrasted it to that covenant with Moses in the Old Testament that had to be renewed day by day, year after year, because it couldn't cleanse the conscience. It wasn't once for all. It just reminded you of sin, reminded you 
that more blood needed to be spilled because you keep sinning. But the good news of Christ is that when He died for sins, He made the perfect sacrifice. His was accepted once and for all by God. And when your life is hidden with Christ in God, His righteous record becomes your righteous record permanently. It doesn't mean that you never sin. It means that, that certainly you will sin again. But that sin has already been covered Your eternal destiny has already been secured. Christ sits at the right hand of the Father saying, This covenant is finished, Lord. Please forgive them. Remember my wounds that you can see. This covenant that I have purchased with my blood is eternal. He is the only one authorized. Just in case you missed that lesson, I want you to look back at chapter 10, verses 11 through 13, they have this good news squarely before you at the beginning of this day. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, every priest that is in the Old Testament stands daily in his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. It's like you. If you are still trying to be your own priest, what are you doing? You're constantly trying to atone for your own sins. You're trying to be like an Old Testament priest. It never works. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet. Why should you follow your great shepherd? Number one, he has power to lead you. He's been raised from the dead. Number two, he has authorization to lead you. He has secured your redemption once and for all. Number three, Where He leads you is good and pleasing. You say, I don't know. I don't know about this good and pleasing business. After all, He's telling me I need to stay married to my wife. I don't know about this good and pleasing business. After all, He tells me I need to be patient with my children who are so ungrateful and and dishonoring to me. I don't know about following good and pleasing. He tells me to forgive my enemies. And to pray for those who persecute me. How could that be good? I don't know about that. He tells me not to sue my fellow Christians. He tells me to pursue reconciliation. He tells me to love my neighbor. He tells me to be reconciled with someone who is different from me ethnically, sociologically. He tells me to give And to give generously and sacrificially my money, my time. But he is good. And he is because this one who has all authority, has all authorization, is equipping you with everything good to do what is pleasing to him. Now, how is he doing that? Well, He is doing that if you are participating with Him. He is doing that. He does that through what we call the ordinary means of grace. Ordinary means ordinary. Ordinary means ordinary things like going to church weekly, participating in morning and evening worship on the Lord's Day, which He has given you this one whole day in seven to rest from your usual works just as you rest from all further attempts to win more favor with Him. 
It's the ordinary means of grace of listening to the Word of God preached and listening to it taught in Bible studies like this. It's ordinary means of grace of reading the Bible yourself, of asking Him for guidance, of asking Him for forgiveness, praying. Ordinary means of grace of fellowshipping with brothers and sisters in Christ. And he says by doing those ordinary things, just those ordinary things, he will equip you with everything good and he will lead you to that which is pleasing. We try to make it way too complicated. We're signing up for the next expensive professional development seminar. We're buying the latest diet. We're going to try to have the next great vacation experience. <clears throat> we try to adopt the latest gimmick in leading our families. Uh, we, we, we think that we've got to do certain things for our kids, and if they don't, we don't do those for those kids, even if it means sacrificing other uh, critically important things that God says are more important, then somehow our kids are going to be less than successful. God says it's, it's simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. It begins with, it begins with keeping the Sabbath day. I know what some of you are saying, oh, you mean don't mow your grass and don't go out to eat on Sunday. No, you're, keep it, just start this way. Keep the Sabbath day by worshiping weekly in a gospel-centered church and hopefully have a morning and evening service and you can bracket your day with worship. Start there. Start by reading a few verses of Scripture per day. Start by spending a few minutes per day in prayer. Do you know, let me just give you an insight into pastoral counseling of what goes on in my mind and my colleagues' mind when people come for pastoral counseling. I have this terrible problem. I have this problem in my, in my marriage. And I am, I'm the first thing I ask, just like a physician, a physician, what does a physician do? You take vital signs and you ask a few questions. <clears throat> and here's what, I, here's what I know a doctor is thinking. If I come in and I weigh 600 pounds and I haven't exercised since I was 10 years old and I smoke a pack of cigarettes a day and I drink like a fish and I'm worrying like crazy and I come in and I say, Doc, I've got a, man, this knee is killing me. What does the doctor say? I don't even know where to start. He doesn't say that. That's what he thinks right? I don't even know where to start. All right, take, uh, take two Tylenol. That'll just right. I don't even know where to start. You've got so much that you have to, you, 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 you've, you've abused the baseline. So someone comes in and says, I go, to, I go to church maybe once, twice a month. I haven't read my Bible. I'm a busy guy. I don't always have time to, to uh, to, to, to worship because I'm so, I've, my, my business is such a problem, I'm, I'm, and my kids in travel soccer, and I, I just, I think I don't even know where to start. Now, I'll tell you where to start. I won't keep it from you. I won't give you two Tylenol, but I'll tell you where to start. You start with the simplest things first, which are the most profound. The ordinary means of grace are not ordinary. The ordinary means of grace are extraordinary in their impact. 
That's what the good shepherd says. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some. Assemble together under gospel-centered preaching and in gospel-centered worship because that is where the Holy Spirit concentrates His work. And you will find that you know what to do, that you're equipped for what is good. You are doing what is pleasing to Him. And then finally, under the great shepherd, it is a beautiful Savior to follow. To whom be glory forever and ever. What is glory? It's beauty. It's perfection. He says, you you should know in the Scripture, whenever the Scripture tells you not to do something, it is because it is guarding something that is beautiful. Why do you not, uh, why can't I have sex with my girlfriend before I get married? Because marriage is beautiful. And sexual relationship within marriage is uniquely satisfying. I'm not telling God, saying, I'm not telling you not to do that because I want to ruin your fun and make, you th- and make people think you're weird with all your other friends. I'm doing it because I'm guarding something that's beautiful, and I want you to have beauty. Why does the Bible say, be not drunk with wine? Because you act like an idiot when you're drunk with wine. It, it hurts your health. It's just God's commands are always for good. His prohibitions are always guarding what is beautiful. Your Savior is not an ogre. He's a beautiful Savior. And He says, I am glorious, gloriously beautiful. I've made you to be beautiful like I am. Now trust me, follow me, obey me, even when it's counterintuitive, even when it makes you stick out from the crowd. He's a great shepherd. He's worthy of following. Secondly, he says, submit to your under-shepherds. Part of the ordinary means of grace that he gives us are, include people, authorities that he's put into our life, not to, not to hinder us, but to help us. Now, we've got to say from the very beginning, this is not the American impulse. The American impulse is to say, we've, this is the way we've been since we were founded as a country, <clears throat> that I'm only going to obey an authority who can punish me. I'm only going to obey the IRS because they can really make my life miserable. I'm only going to keep the, the speed limit because I don't want to get a ticket. I'm only going to obey my teacher at school because I don't want a bad grade and I don't want to stay after school. I'm only going to obey my boss because I want to be promoted. But in the kingdom of God, when the more the mind of Christ overtakes you, the more you begin to see even, even those bad authorities are put into your life for a good reason, because Christ wants life to go well with you. And He's especially given us leaders in, or He's also given us leaders in our churches. I have to tell you. You Lutherans and Episcopalians and Roman Catholics have a better perspective on this than we Protestants. You respect your pastors and your elders and those who are leaders over you much better than we do. We take the priesthood of believers to mean that we are all individual 
pastors. And we will listen to our pastors when their opinions happen to match with ours. And otherwise, we will give them our opinions. And uh, when they obey our opinions, then we will obey them. But look at what he says in our text. At the end of this passage, as he's been pleading with his people, listen to what I have to say about Christ. Listen to what I have to say about the way he wants to lead you. Now, obey us in following that. Not obey us because we're going to tell you what color socks to wear and how short to keep your hair and how to dress and so forth. We're going to tell you how to live in the gospel. And he pleads with them, obey us. Listen to our exhortation. Now, the first thing, first point we need to make is that no pastor, no elder has inherent authority. That is, I don't have authority because I'm a great person. I don't have authority. I don't go around and tell people what to do in every part of their life. Christ is the head and king of the church. I only have authority as I am am directing people to follow Christ. But as I, a pastor, an elder, as we are telling you, leading you to the way Christ wants you to live and think according to God's Word, then it is authoritative. It's this kind of authority, though. It is ministerial and it is declarative. That comes from the preliminary principles of our Presbyterian book of order. That authority is delegated to us by the congregation. The congregation says, we want you elders and pastors to be spiritual authorities in our lives, and we will submit ourselves to you and give you authority to minister in our life. That means I'm giving you authority to get into my business and apply the Word of God specifically to me to tell me to come into my place of grief, to come into my place of illness, to come into my place of dysfunction, and I want you to tell me the promises of God. I want you to tell me the threats of God. I want you to give me rebuke and correction. And if I don't listen to it, I want you to increase the heat. I am submitting, as you join a church like this, I'm submitting to your discipline that if I continue in my rebellious ways, running away from Christ, then... You are an authority to tell me that I am outside of the will of God and to ban me from the Lord's Supper. And it's declarative. The reason we believe in a learned ministry, that is why we send people to seminary and teach them to study God's Word in Greek and Hebrew and theological traditions is that our work is to dig into this Bible every day and understand what it means and then do the hard work as we live among our people of applying it in our lives. Our authority is ministerial and declarative. And our authority is to be listened to and followed as long as we are leading in a good and pleasing direction. Now, it may not feel good and pleasing all the time, but if it's the direction of Christ, we know as we've just studied, it is good and pleasing. That involves attention. Is your pastor, is your spiritual leader paying attention to you? Is it 
personal? Is he watching over your soul? Verse 17. Which literally means losing sleep. Uh, this, This image of the shepherd is one who stays up all night long taking care of his sheep. That is one of the that is one of the, uh, the, the, the occupational hazards of being a shepherd, as it is probably for being a physician, too. You're always on call. And even if you're not getting called on the telephone, it is a burden on your soul. It's a dignifying burden. When I was a young pastor, I read an old ruling elder uh, in uh, Scotland wrote a book called The Shepherd and His Sheep. And he talked about his pastor who said... He said he goes to sleep every, or he goes to bed every night with the weight of 3,000 souls on his heart. Well, at the time I was pastoring a 50-member church, and I said, well, at least I don't have 3,000. Well, now I know what that feels like. It also means that the, the pastor who is leading in a good and pleasing direction is not only one who is watching out for his sheep, one who is clearly saying, I want what is good for them, but it's also one who is patient. Rebuke, exhort, and correct with all diligence and patient instruction. A shepherd of the sheep, one who's leading in a good and pleasing direction, is one who keeps watch over your souls so that you may, it may be an advantage to you who greets because he cares and he is patient with sheep who are, he's happy if they're generally going in the right direction. The shepherd leads from behind. It's not always a pleasant view. But he leads from behind. Not always a pleasant smell. But he's just generally keeping people moving in the right direction. And one goes off that way, another goes off that way. He's not a general who says, let's take the hill, and anybody who's not following, let him die. The shepherd is leading in this way. I read this week an article by a man who said, it is possible to be a false teacher and teach truth. What he meant by that was, you can be, you, you, there are two ways to be a false teacher. One way to be a false teacher, to be a heretic, is to teach doctrine that is counter to Scripture. Another way to be a false teacher is to teach truth, but harshly, legalistically, in a browbeating, threatening kind of way. Listen to what he says. I found it convicting. Not all false teachers are wrong in their doctrine. Some can check all the right boxes and get all the right answers on the quiz, but they're just as hopelessly unhelpful as any prosperity teacher. Why? Because they are, number one, they're harsh with God's people. Number two, they put themselves first. Number three, they preach a gospel that they themselves don't practice. They may be the most dangerous of all. It's the same way with our teachers. We need teachers. We need to be teachers who are willing to patiently instruct, correct, and encourage that control their anger when those under their care make the same mistakes over and over again. They need to be those who encourage the weak and weary and point them back to their Savior. They put aside their expectations and celebrate the successes along the way, no matter how minor they may be. So those are the characteristics of a good shepherd or good under-shepherd. And if you have those kinds of shepherds, you must follow them. You must obey them because that is to follow Christ. And here's what happens if you don't. 
You know, it used to worry me when I was a young pastor and somebody wouldn't listen to what I was telling them from God's Word, and they were just going off in their own direction, insisting on living in their own way. I used to think, they're, they're questioning my authority, so I've got, to, I've got to bow my back. I've got to get stronger. But you know what? Now, after 30 years of, of doing this and watching people's lives, I realize that my job is to compel and to plead and to do my best to convince and to urge people to follow the Savior, not so that I can have the gratification of their following me, but because now I know if they don't, their lives are disastrous. It is not good for them. My judge on the, my friend, my judge on the bench, what happens when somebody doesn't obey his, you know, he's representing the state, he tells these people in front of him, in front of, in the dock, he tells them what the state requires, he issues the declaration, and then who executes his law, the, the man with the pistol on his hip? When we, representing Christ, say, this is the way you must follow Christ, we plead with you to follow Christ. This is the way of eternal life. Who executes that will? I don't have anybody with a pistol in his hip to do it. It's much more terrifying than that. It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit pursues. The Holy Spirit warns. And then the most terrifying thing of all is when you continue to persist in living your own way and neglecting the authorities that God has put in your life, then God says to the Holy Spirit, have it your way. You do exactly what you want to do. That's the worst judgment of all. We plead with people to do what is good and pleasing, and we plead. These are the ones you must follow, those who are beautiful to follow, those who practice the same gospel they preach. Of course, it won't be perfect but it needs to be generally faithful. So when I heard again Bing Hampton repeat a verse that they're memorizing in the lower school yesterday when Paul said, whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, think on these things. And follow, Paul says, follow my example, what you have heard and seen and observed in me, follow my example. Preachers and leaders are all too quick to say, well, that was only Paul. Fortunately, we don't have to do that. Well, we, yes, we do. We have to say as we are living in God's Word, as we are teaching it, and as we are controlled by the Holy Spirit, we have this awesome responsibility of living it in front of you as well. Don't follow the ugly part of the example. Follow the beautiful part that reflects Christ, and your life will be beautiful too. But in the meantime, he says, even this inspired author says, plead with God for us that our consciences would be clear, our character would be preserved. We are constantly under attack, elders and pastors, constantly under attack. The devil daily wants to destroy our marriages, wants to destroy our mental health, our emotional health. He wants to destroy our relationships. Pray for us so that it will go well with you. Well, it's uncomfortable to preach on yourself before everybody else, but I hope you hear from this author 
how much God cares for you, that He not only tells you of a Savior who is incarnate and laid His life down for you, but He has also given you under-shepherds to represent Him to you that you might follow in the everlasting way. I had to sing, uh, The Sands of Time Are Sinking. I was impressed with how many of you knew that hymn. You were even singing parts to it. That's, uh, it's not exactly Samuel Rutherford's hymn. It was uh, by uh, a woman who admired Samuel Rutherford's ministry. And so a number of, of themes from Samuel Rutherford come through that hymn. Samuel Rutherford was 17th century Scottish reformer who spent much of his ministry in prison for preaching the true faith. And if you want to read uh, something that will warm your heart and cause you to fall in love with Jesus in a new and fresh way, you should read his letters. They'll almost make you a little uncomfortable because his letters representing the bride of Christ are so romantic, not to the person he's writing, but the, the love he shares with Christ and experiences from Christ is full of such romantic terms. It is it is almost totally unique. But that one who wrote those letters, often most many of them from prison to his parishioners, was one who loved his people dearly and wanted to represent the shepherd Christ to his people. So that hymn that we sang at the beginning, we sang, what, four verses or so? It has about 17, actually. And the last one, goes this way. Anwith, by the way, Anwith is the name of the, the town in Scotland where he pastured. <clears throat> he said, or she says of him, Oh, if one soul from Anwith meet me at God's right hand, that will be all my glory in Emmanuel's land. It should be the prayer of each of our hearts as those who each have responsibility. We have our own shepherding responsibilities. Each one of you has at least one sheep who is following you. And let that be our prayer as we keep our eyes fixed on Christ. Oh, if one soul from Memphis meet me at God's right hand, my whole life will be worth it. That will be my glory in Emmanuel's land.